Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Asheville. Uh, we're continuing our Advent series, The Blank That Stole Christmas. And uh, we've covered a lot of important and really uh, personal issues. Fred, I think, has done a fantastic job talking about grief and loneliness and busyness. And today we're going to talk about a, another experience that can steal the joy and the celebration of Christmas, uh, which is why Jesus came into the world to save us. Um, one way that the sermon is not about, but one way that you can steal uh, Christmas joy is by giving me any updates about the World Cup final going on right now. Okay, so don't, if you're checking scores during the sermon today, don't give me any, please don't give me, I'm recording it, all right, as soon as I get home, it's a, a bowl of hot pinto beans and the World Cup for me. Okay, so don't, don't give me any updates. He gave me a little, are pinto beans weird to eat? No, they're good. Anyways, okay. Just pinto bean. It's like a whole thing. Anyways, so sorry, guys. So sorry. Okay, so we're going to be in, in John chapter 3 today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at a, at a pretty familiar story. I know in this uh, passage we're going to look at, most of us, if not all of us, are going to know at least uh, one verse in this story we're going to look at. We're, we're just going to read the first nine verses now, and then we're going to uh, jump around and, and really uh, look at the story through verse 21. But, but I'm going to start in John chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 1 through verse 9. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Well, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. But Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll get into the message today. Jesus, thank you that we get to come and celebrate uh, that you came uh, from heaven. You lived the life that you lived. You died the death you died, and then you rose from the grave, making it possible for us to have new life. And so for us, 2,000 years later, continents, cultures, languages away, uh, Jesus, meet with us. and Make yourself more uh, just as real to us today as, as you were to Nicodemus right here speaking to him face to face. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. It is one week until Christmas. Okay. Okay. A few different reactions in the room, right? We had a few woohoos, a clap. I saw some excited leg pumps. I saw some heavy sighs, a few slouch shoulders, one or two eye rolls. I'm not going to point fingers, okay? But it's one week until Christmas. Yeah. For some of us, it really does bring excitement. Uh, for some of us, we, we, we felt tightness in our shoulders and a little shortness of breath for whatever reason. Maybe you made yourself have to breathe deep. Some of us sigh because we know we should be excited, but it's just really hard to get excited about it. 
for all kinds of different reasons. We hear songs on the radio like it's the most wonderful time of the year and we catch ourselves saying things like, I wish that were true. Or I remember when that was true. You find yourself saying things like, man, I kind of just can't wait for Christmas to be over and life to be, go back to normal. Or you've caught yourself saying something like, yeah, we really just do all of this for the kids. Like, like that's really what Christmas is just for the kids. Or maybe you find yourself like, the day of Christmas is so exciting, and then as soon as the presents are wrapped or are, are, are unwrapped, it's kind of like, oh, that was fun. Or maybe uh, it's fun, even it's not fun while you're unwrapping presents because there's that one family member that kind of panics and can't have fun unless all the wrapping paper is in a trash bag. That's me. All right, my name is Matt, and I hate wrapping paper all over the living room. Okay. Maybe you're like, feel yourself this year, you're like Cindy Lou Who in the live-action Grinch, which is good. I know if you're over the age of 40, you think it's not good. It is a good movie, okay? And you're like on a quest this year to, to find out if, if like Christmas's whole thing, there is more to it. Or maybe you're like the Grinch himself who like thinks the whole thing is kind of silly and overdone and you just don't get it, which is interesting because if you watch just kind of cultural commentary, the original Grinch from the 50s or 60s, the reason why he was the way he was is just because his heart was wrong. But then later on, the like newer Grinches, there's like a whole reason why his childhood was messed up. So just, just interesting, not right or wrong, just interesting cultural commentary here. Uh, or maybe you're like Ebenezer Scrooge and you're like, man, this is, this is all stupid. I wish the world could just keep turning as normal. Why do we get to take a day off and spend all this money and we use our grumpiness to mask our scarcity mindset or greed? Maybe you're asking yourself the question, how am I supposed to be happy and joyful when my family is a wreck? Or how am I supposed to be happy and joyful when I'm broke and I can't give my kids the Christmas I want to give them? How can I feel that way when I'm lonely? Or how can I feel that way when it's just not how it used to be? And for a lot of us, Christmas can be really confusing. As Christians, I think it's fair to, to, to say based on the climate of the spirituality in America that we are often wondering, how are we supposed to feel about Christmas? Should we even bother with the celebration, right? I mean, a lot of times, like, kind of growing up for me, the best thing, like, we had to offer was labeling some of the Christmas tree stuff, like some kind of symbolism that had to do with the star over the stable, and there's the tree and the presents. And, like, I get all that, but, like, is that really the best we have to offer for making Christmas special? I mean, what, what do we do? I mean, is, is, like, for me personally, I get myself, I catch myself confused wondering, like, is all the Christmas celebration just an excuse to eat too much junk food, hang out with family that I really don't know that well, and it's kind of awkward, and spend too much money? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, Christmas, the whole kind of thing can be a bit confusing. If, Jesus, if Christmas really is about Jesus coming into the world and the expectation for his return, then why does it take so much effort to remember that? Right? Like, why does it take more effort to remember the true meaning of Christmas and feel worshipful than it does to feel sad when all the presents are gone? So at least for me, I think sometimes Christmas can be a little confusing. And so today we're going to be talking about the confusion that stole Christmas 
And as we go into the last week of Advent leading up to Christmas Day, I hope that we can go to it with a more worshipful mind and heart. I hope that we can get past the confusion that often feels like it's stealing the true meaning of Christmas because the reality of Christmas that we're going to talk about today is that we have the very presence, power, and activity of God here with us on earth because of Jesus. So we're going to look through this story of Nicodemus, and and we're going to see two things. We're going to see the problem that leads to this confusion, and then we're going to see a promise from Jesus that offers us a solution to the confusion. Nicodemus, you know, we read in the story, he's a religious leader, and so when he comes up to talk to Jesus, it's interesting, there's kind of two things to note. Uh, He comes at night, which I think one shows that he was like maybe a little nervous to, to be seen talking to Jesus, but also... I think it's really important for the rift that, that Jesus goes on later that we're going we're gonna to look at. See, Nicodemus had a problem. He was coming to Jesus. In the first two chapters of John, Jesus was presented in the Gospel of John as kind of this figure that was coming to kind of undo religious systems. Like you remember at the end of chapter 2, he turned the water into wine and he used purification, uh, like ritualistic water at a wedding to, to serve the, the guests. And so so. Uh, Jesus was kind of set up in the Gospel of John as someone who was coming to change things. And so Nicodemus kind of comes as a religious leader to Jesus as kind of like an like a emissary or like an ambassador. Like on behalf of everybody who had experienced the miracles and signs that Jesus had been doing in Jerusalem, he comes to talk to Jesus. He comes at night in the dark. And what's interesting is that Nicodemus, he had the right theology. Like he knew the right stuff, right? I mean, verse 2, he said like, hey, Teacher, like we, knew, we know that you came from God because you couldn't perform the signs you were doing if, if God weren't with you. So he had the right theology, he had the right mindset, but he still was left with how can this be? Like how can this Jesus who I've experienced and seen do all of these incredible things, how can this be true? And the same problem that led to Nicodemus experiencing Jesus but not walk away from him, believing in him and following him is the same problem that I think leads us to confusion during Christmas. See, as humans, we feel this problem. We experience what Nicodemus was going through. We experience every day, whether consciously or not, how humans try to live their lives in a way to experience the benefits of the kingdom of God without knowing the happiness, joy, satisfaction, and pleasure of knowing the king of the true kingdom. See, because here's the reality that Nicodemus was faced with right here. The reality of the world we live in is that there are two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of light, or the, which we could call the kingdom of God, And there's a kingdom of darkness. That's the reality that we live in. And we must decide every day which kingdom we are going to participate in in advance. That was the problem that that Nicodemus was faced with here. See, this great confusion around Christmas, even for us who know Jesus and trust in him, the question is like, why can't we really understand the goodness of the reality of God becoming man of heaven coming to earth to bring us back to himself, if that's all true, then why do we still value the things of man over the things of God so much? Why is it so hard to participate in this kingdom of light, and why is the kingdom of dark 
darkness so permeating in our culture? Like, why do we still experience pain, hurt, loneliness, grief, hunger, betrayal? And it's because we live in a world that loves darkness more than it loves light. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, this is the verdict. That light has come into the world. Okay, so that's Jesus. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we have the lights. That's why we do this. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Now, that sounds super condemning, but it's not. I think that sounds super condemning because of a lot of the mid-19th century's revival movements and evangelism movements, but that's not the way it is. I mean, the reality is that those verses there just kind of talk about, like, that's just the way it is. Like, left to our own devices, humans are going to try to create structures that give them power and oppress other people like it's second nature. Like it's clear that humans would rather do things on their own terms than submit to a higher power. Like if you just ask anyone that, that doesn't associate with religion or say they don't have any beliefs in, in, any, in any kind of God or spirituality, um, why they don't, it's just, it make, they, they say, you know, I, I either have some non-systemized spirituality that I have or I found fulfillment in this or I find truth here. And, and it's the prevailing mood of our culture even to the point where there are systems of society that are actively seeking to get rid of any religion in the public, like the public sector of life. Right, now, this sounds odd because, because in the early 1900s, in 1933, coming after about, uh, right around 200 years after the Enlightenment, where, where the idea of like empirical evidence, empiricism, humanism, you know, a postmodern secular world, there was a group of a few dozen uh, scientists, uh, religious leaders, philosophers, and politicians. They got together and they wrote this thing called the Humanist Manifesto. Okay, you can look it up. They have, they have a magazine. You can, you can get it once a month if you want. Uh, I don't get the magazine, but I've, re I've read the, the manifesto online. It's interesting because what they did was they all got together and they said, okay, now that we as humans are advanced enough to where we no longer need religion in order to advance as, as humans in society, the idea of humanism is that, that humans have everything they need intellectually and inside of them to advance. So they said, now that we can move past the barbaric ideas of religion, let's write, they call it a manifesto, it's a creed, it's like a doctrinal statement, which is just like kind of ironic in itself. They said, Let, let's write this, this, um, this, this humanist manifesto so that, so that we can create systems and structures in our decision-making powers that be that gets rid of any religion, because if we got rid of religion and we got that out of our society, then we could finally get rid of war, we could get rid of sickness, and we could, we could get, like, we'd get past the hindrances that keep us, like, basically devouring each other. And so, so all throughout any, any like, in, our, in, in any Western culture, that Humanist Manifesto has, has made its way into the thought processes of the powers that be. The interesting thing is that since then, there's been a world war, a few dozen civil wars around the world, and the rate of anxiety, depression, broken families, and numbers of suicides, hospitalizations have only gone up. The Humanist Manifesto, it plays itself out all the time in the way we think when we don't even realize it because the, the culture that we're formed in 
Like we catch ourselves saying things all the time like, if we just had blank right, then we would be in better shape. Like fill in the blank with a political party, the right education, a philosophy of economics, right? Like if we just had blank, all these problems would go away. But the problem, the problem that we face is that no man-made philosophy, creed, organization, economy can ever do for us what Jesus came to do and it was fix the brokenness of the human heart. Just before chapter three in verses uh, 24 and 25 of chapter two, it says that Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. See, since, since the Garden of Eden, when God created the ideal for mankind, a right, harmonious relationship with him and with each other in the world around them, left to their own devices, humans have tried to take the place of God in their lives at the expense of the people around them. But Jesus came not to fix the broken systems like that, that we find ourselves living in, but he came so that we can have a full life and he came to fix our hearts so that we can be transformed from the inside out and tear down broken systems of oppression and violence and rebuild systems that lead to human flourishing. See, we, it's hard, and it seems feels super harsh, I, I get it, like, to say things like this, but it's important to understand that we live in a world that is permeated and surrounded by darkness. See, when John uses the, the, the Greek word to say the, that in English is the world, the, the idea of that Greek word, it's cosmos, it, it's the best definition I've heard of it is it's the realm of humanity arrayed against the will of God. Paul, when he writes his letter to the Ephesians, says that, that before we knew Christ, we were dead in our sins, and he says we were children of wrath. Once again, Paul just being a little extra, turning the volume from all the way up to 12 if it's to 10. He says that we're, we gratify the desires of the flesh and follow its desires and thoughts. And see, it's easy to, 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 to not want to say things like this and believe that this is true, that people without Jesus, without knowing Jesus are this way, but because, you know, yes, we are all made in God's image, but it's important not to confuse the truth of all humans being made in God's image with the doctrine of adoption. Like, yes, all humans are made in God's image and they have the right to express themselves and are entitled to their own agency and opinions, but that doesn't mean that without being reborn, without being remade from the inside out by Jesus, that we won't do or we won't know what's right and good, right? I mean, we know this just true, like his, history, philosophy, theology, sociology teaches us that, that given the chance, humans will devour one another on a quest to become the most powerful person around so that no one else can tell us what to do or how to live or create a situation where we don't answer to anyone other than ourselves. Like, like not even just philosophically in the systems that, that exist, but, but we live in a culture that teach us and want us to continue to be slaves to the flesh and its desires like Paul talked about. 
Okay, so anybody heard of Sigmund Freud? Yep, okay. Forrest? Sigmund Freud's nephew, he had a nephew named Edward Bernays. And right around the same time as the, the Humanist Manifesto, early 1900s, Edward Bernays wrote a book called Propaganda. And he called, he, like Edward Bernays, he's called the father of PR and marketing today. And, and the ideas that what he talked about using his uncle's psychological methods and studies, he, he, wrote, a, he wrote this book that, that basically was the idea of, he, here's how we are able to control the minds of the public. It's really scary. You can, look, you can get it on free, like on uh, Google Reads. But here's, here's, just one, here's just one quote from it. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes are formed, our ideas suggested largely by people that we've never even heard of. In almost every act of our daily lives, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who pull the wires which control the public mind. No wonder we're confused. If you're wondering if what he said is actually true, next time you're hanging out with your friends, start talking about a product and then scroll through Facebook or Instagram and see if an ad for that product doesn't pop up. Right? Or try to watch any YouTube video and not get some kind of political ad, right? I mean, all of this is true. No wonder we're confused. No wonder coming around Christmas time we're wondering, is this really what it is? Like, do I have to be bummed out once the presents are opened? In the words of the great philosopher and frontman of the iconic American rock band, The Killers, this is the world... This is the world that we live in. I feel myself get tired. But here's the good news. Jesus came to undo the confusion. Jesus came to bring light into the world. The same God that the psalmists in Psalm 139 say is so full of light that even the darkness isn't dark to him has come to bring light into the world. See, that's what he's saying what happened in the parable whenever he says anyone born of the water and spirit can be an active part of God's kingdom. We can live in the light, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. John later in his epistle in 1 John says that we can walk in the light as he is in the light. See, participating in, seeing God's kingdom, being a part of God's kingdom, it's the light and being able to actively participate in his will, in his reign, in his rule. That is not a heavy-handed power grab trying to get you to buy things and think a certain way and conform to a certain ideology. But it is an easy yoke and a light burden that celebrates the differences around the world that he created in his goodness. Being born again literally means being born from above. The Greek, when it says born again, it means being born from above. It's accepting the gift of heaven, which is Jesus, and allowing him to transform your heart and becoming a person of love. 
In the Gospel of John, later on, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the only way to experience this life of love in the Father is through him. Jesus came to seek and save those that are lost. See, the world and the culture that we have and that we're surrounded by and permeated in, in darkness, you can only know where you are, right? Like in darkness, you only know where you are. You don't know where you're going. Uh, in, in high school, we grew up, Anna and I grew up near the, the Linville Gorge. And if you've never been hiking around through the Linville Gorge, it can be pretty confusing. The trails are like, it's, it is full-blown wilderness out there. And so uh, I, I thought I was gonna go on this like two or three day backpacking trip. I had everything set up. I borrowed a GPS from Anna's dad. So this is like 13 years ago. So it's like crazy to think even how GPS changed. But it was like one of those like GPS like things, like there were no iPhones in the mountains yet. They were only in like major cities, you know? And so there I am, I'm with, and I think, oh, okay, I got a GPS. I don't need a map or anything like that. And I go out, and, I, and like within a few hours, I'm lost. And I'm, and I'm pretty good directionally. Like, like I kind of grew up hiking in the woods and stuff. I was totally lost. And so I'm like, oh, great, I'll pull out my GPS. And so I pull out my GPS, and I open it. And it, all the GPSs did at the time was just show you where you were. There, were no, there was no trail map on the GPS, it just showed a bunch of lines with elevation and then a river pretty close by and I was a dot somewhere in there. And so what I had to do was I, I did, you know, thankfully I had a little bit of cell service and I had like, like a few of, you know, like used to, you had like a certain number of texts you could send or else you get charged an outrageous amount of money for it. Does anyone remember this? You guys remember that? All right, so I text my friend. I'm like, hey, I think I'm on this trail. I'm lost and you only have like a Twitter amount of, characters in one text you know so I'm like lost started at this trail I think I took a wrong right turn help me and my buddy who's like now he's like a like a guide works in the forestry service a few hours later he, he shows up and he gets me he shows up and he gets me he said Matt he pulls out a map and he says Matt here's where you are you're supposed to turn here and then he just like disappears into the night you know like he's one of those guys he's one of those dudes but the point is See, the GPS, the, the world that we live in, the, the, our world that's permeated and surrounded by darkness, it can only show us where we are. That's why it's so interesting if you look at the most popular phrases and lingo for major life decision and choices is based around feelings and identity, which are momentary actions and thoughts and feelings. But Jesus came, the mission of Jesus was to come into the darkness and show us a way out. That's what light does. See, in, in Chris, Chris Wright wrote a book called The Mission of God, and he sums up the whole story of the Bible. He says, answers this question, what can God do about human's sin? Well, here's what Jesus does about human sin. Verses 13 through 17, it says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, which is the Son of Man, that's Jesus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world, that cosmos, the array of humans set against the will of God. For God so loved his creation, the world, his people that have turned against him, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
See, God sent his own son to earth, God as man, to save those humans hostile to his presence and activity who would rather have toy. This is not against Christmas. We're doing Christmas, okay? I'm not anti-Christmas at all. Like, we even met Santa the other day, and that was wild stuff because my two-year-old just said she wanted a cookie. Why do we spend all this money? Anyways. Listen, all we have to do is believe in him. Paul said in Ephesians, again, same place where he talked about the children of wrath and hostile against God. He said that when you believed, you were marked in him, that's Jesus, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. See, when we've been born from above, catch the metaphor here, when someone is born again, they have to travel through darkness into light. For us, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, that means that we have come from death to life as we believe in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. See, Jesus made this possible by going through death, catch the metaphor, through darkness into light so that we can live an eternal life now and with him forever. So, man, talk about, like, confusion. Like, this isn't the confusion that steals Christmas. This is the confusion that fuels our celebration of Christmas. Like, why in the world would Jesus choose that? Like, why would he do that? Why would he humble himself in becoming obedient to death on a cross? And it's so that we can share in his life. So that we can become co-heirs in a life and a future that's far better than any worldly passion, pleasure, pain, treasure, prestige, success, monetary gain, heartache, or promise can offer. And Jesus is able to change the human hearts exactly because he became a human and he understands the human heart. Listen to what Dorothy Sayers says about the incarnation. I've been reading this for a few weeks. It's going to hit me later when I'm eating pinto beans. I'll throw my spoon across the table. Listen to this. Here's what Dorothy Sayers says. For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. But here's the thing. God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he's playing out with creation, he kept his own rules and he played fair because he can exact nothing from man that he hasn't exacted from himself. Because Jesus himself has gone through the whole of the human experience from trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors and pain of humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. See, when God was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and he thought that it was all well worthwhile. See, this is exactly why those of us who know Jesus can't read those passages of Scripture or hear a sermon like this and think that we are any better than any other human being. Because we know Jesus and we believe in Jesus, it doesn't create a hierarchy of importance or make us better than anyone, but rather it should fuel our mission to love those around us and seek to bring them into the light of Jesus, which is basically the entire book of 2 Corinthians. See, the promise that Jesus made is this. Let's keep the metaphor of darkness and light here. Anyone who believes in me will not die. That's what Jesus said. For anyone who believes in him will not die, a.k.a. darkness forever, but will have eternal life, a.k.a. life in the light of God that Revelation in Habakkuk and Zechariah says eventually will replace the sun. 
See, that's what verse 21 says. It says, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. See, that's not like a scary verse. That's not one of those verses you use to like trick you into, into being scared of anything and make a decision. That's a verse that's actually a really positive thing that we get to look forward to. Because that when God sees us, when we've placed our faith in Jesus and we live in the light, when God sees us, the verdict is that he looks at us and he sees the goodness and life and light of his son Jesus in us. If we've been sealed by his very presence, the Holy Spirit and his power living in us, then why would we ever argue with what Paul said in Romans 8 where he said, for those of us who are in, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, we get to stand before God one day and he gets to look at us and say, welcome home. He's the father from the story, the prodigal son, meeting us on the road, wrapping us with his arm, with his arms, putting his best robe on us and a ring on our finger and kissing us on the cheek saying, I've been waiting for you. Um, when I, was, when I was a kid and we moved from uh, South Georgia to, to, the north, to the mountains, kind of between here and Boone, up in the middle of nowhere, the house that we were moving into was like an old uh, church parsonage. My dad was a pastor and it was on top of this hill. So you, you gotta understand, like, we left our house and it was like 70 degrees and we were fighting mosquitoes to get into the van to driving up the week before Christmas to the mountains and it was snowing. Like, it was like the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life. But I remember getting there and it was dark and so the road was kind of on top of this hill and, and like you kind of had to curve up and then you park and everything was dark and you couldn't see anything and it was cloudy and it was cold. But I just remember thinking like, man, like I bet this place, is, like I wonder what this place is like, you know, because I'm here, I'm here, but it's all dark and I, and, I, and, I can't, and I can't experience the fullness of it yet. But I'll never forget in the morning, sat on, the house sat on top of this hill and there were these, uh, these windows in the living room that, that pointed to the east and the difference of coming into the house that night and at dark and the difference of waking up in the mountains of North Carolina getting to see a sunrise over the mountains are two totally different experiences. And for Christmas, the reality of Jesus coming to earth to set us free from slavery of sin and death so that we can live forever with him is the difference going into Christmas morning of pulling into somewhere when it's dark or, or, or experiencing it with the sunrise. See, if we've come into the light of Jesus through faith and what Jesus has already done, he is doing and will do in and through us, then we can boldly and gladly enjoy the very presence of God. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. That's what clears up the confusion. Titus, Titus 2, 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So as we close today, I wanna offer this hope that hopefully clears up the confusion of Christmas and we can go into next Sunday morning celebrating the goodness of Jesus. I wanna offer two things of response for, for those of us who know Jesus and then maybe those of us who don't know Jesus. 
Um, for those of us who don't know Jesus, who don't have faith in Jesus, let me just ask a simple question, and I don't, I'm not asking this to be cheeky, but why not? Like, why not Jesus? Like, I've spent the past 33 and a half minutes making the case for why Jesus, following him and submitting to his rule and reign and accepting his grace and love and life is better than anything the world has to offer. So let me just ask, will you believe in Jesus and let him be the savior and the king of your life? And then for those of us who do believe in Jesus, let me just ask two things. Two things, if, if the reality of what Jesus did, his mission to come to earth and to save us, I just wanna ask two things. One is a church and then, and then one thing for us kind of individually to do. Uh, as a church, Fellowship Asheville, let me, I'm just gonna ask a question, something I've been chewing on for a while not to bring any kind of shame or anything like that, but let me just ask, in reality, we're here at the end of the year in a church like ours, okay, a church like Fellowship Asheville. If you look around the room, you know the people you know, with the resources that we have, with, with who we are as people who make up Fellowship Asheville. How many people do we think should come from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life through faith in Jesus in the next year? I don't know. I don't know that answer. But if Jesus was willing to come from heaven to earth and to die so that we could have this message of hope and come into the light, I just, I just wonder, as we're looking into the new year, in a church like this, in a church like ours, how many people should we see come, you know, put it how you want, be saved, be born again, come to know Jesus, go from, from darkness to light? How many people should we see? And then here's the, the thing individually for us as we go into celebrating this last week of Advent and going to Christmas morning. Here's a prayer that I've been praying this week as I've been preparing for this message and that I hope we can pray together. Jesus, make your birth, life, death, and resurrection as real to me today as it was to the people who witnessed it and help me live in your light. Amen. So let me, I'm going to pray for us, and the band's going to come up and close us out in worshiping Jesus. Jesus, thank you for how much you love us. Thank you that you showed your love for us, that while we were still sinners, you came and you died for us. And so, Jesus, as we, as we head in uh, to this last week of, last few weeks of the year, the last week of Advent before Christmas Day, thank you that we get to celebrate Christmas. Thank you that celebrating Christmas is a thing that's not only held to one day, but we every day can wake up and we can say, Jesus, thank you for dying for me so that I can live a life for the good of others and for your glory. So Jesus, as we go into this last week and we're singing songs about your birth, as we're reading stories about your birth, as we're doing activities and reading books about celebrating the stars and the shepherds and the angels and the wise men and all that, Jesus, make your presence as real to us as it, will to the, as it was to the people who saw you in the stable, who brought you gifts, who came and knew that a baby was born in Bethlehem. Jesus, your birth was real enough for Herod to do something drastic and, and commit, commit a great act of evil. So Jesus, let us in our life know that you are so real and present that we would be fueled to do great acts of love and goodness to those around us. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.